the one thing I learned in the last year is to unlearn everything I thought I knew. That's the greatest revelation I received in the year 2018 is that I don't know what I think I know because I have I have conjured it up. I have I have I have what I have maybe systematically uh, whatever collected. What, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm looking for a, a word here. What is education? My uncle says that education is information compiled together through trial and error. Okay, what I was doing was compiling information. I, I was not receiving revelation. Yes, there might have been some revelation in it. There might have been some pretty cool things in there that I was preaching. But it was all based on the theatric the theatrics of my presentation and my approach and my deliverance, you know. Uh, I still walk from side to side. I still walk. But there was a time that I would walk down to that door and back about 15 times during one sermon. It, 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 it was because that's what I seen. That's what I thought that I had to develop was the theatrics and was uh, the stage performance. And so when I would preach, which was very seldom, it would take me two, three, sometimes four days to recover. I would wake up the next morning and my voice would be hoarse. My voice would be weak. I would feel, I would feel, I, I would feel, I would, I would feel exhausted. I, I was spent. And I thought that I was doing my best. But I was right. Absolutely right. I was doing my best. But now my best is in the posture of his rest, and I don't really have to do anything. Now, I'm not saying that I don't study. I'm just saying that I don't cram my mind and compile my mind full of information. I lay myself out in a posture of intimacy so that he can conceive within my heart the revelation of what it is he wants to speak in the hour. Does that, does that make sense? Because I, 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 I will promise you, I, 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 can, I, I can go to the internet. And it, depending on how much I want to pay or whether I want to be a cheapskate, I can download sermons all day long and preach them to you. And with the right theatrics and the right memorization, you'll think that I came up with that. And it's not necessarily so. And I... I hate to say it, but I'm going to. It's one of those uh, sorry, not sorry things. If you don't have a personal relationship with Christ Jesus, you have no business holding or obtaining a position over a church to where you come in every morning or Sunday morning to present to them what Yahweh is saying in the hour and in the moment and in the day that they're in. Listen. Okay, I understand. I can take something that Jensen Franklin preached maybe 10 years ago and bring it in here, and something in it will be relevant, and something in it will be applicable to every person in this room. Why? Because it is the Word of God. It is the Word of God. I don't care if it's crap flowed off. We, we, we can say what we want to about these guys, but there's... If, if they are coming up and reading the Word of God, there's something in the Word of God that is powerful. I'm going to tell, I'm going to show it to you. Most of us know the scripture, Hebrews 4, 12. 4, 4, 3, 4, baby. 
preacher knows the Bible from front to back. Now, I don't know really from front to back. I know about where it's at. It's Hebrews 4.12. I don't know about Bible's name 24. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. To dividing a psalm or even the bone and marrow of the spirit and the soul, uh, discerning the, the intent of the heart or the, 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 the intent of the heart and, and, and the intent. What's it say there? Somebody got the Bible up. So the word of God is in and of itself a force. It's powerful. Okay. When something has a force, it has the ability to move something. Okay. What is wind? Wind is something that we can't necessarily see with our eye, but we can see the force that is projected and generated by the wind. The water is a force. If you get inside the river, if the river is, is, is too swift, it will overcome you by way of force. It moves something. So the word of God is a force, which means it has power. It has the ability to generate. It has the ability to move. It has the ability to take something from one place to the other. And that's what the word of God does to humanity. It takes humanity from point A to point B. Point A to point B is not in a horizontal plane. It is actually in a vertical plane. The Word of God was meant to take you from glory to glory to glory to glory. Not from satisfied to satisfied to content to content to content. It was meant to take you from I have no hope to I walk in authority and I walk in power. See, I know people that read the Bible and they only read it in the context that one day I will get to the place of my rest. But see, the Bible doesn't actually say that one day you're going to get to your rest. It said that that day is already now. Mm -hmm. How James, right? That's the same scripture that he just read. I'm going to, I'm going to reread in the New Living Translation. Verse 3, Hebrews 4, 3 says, For only we who believe can enter his place of rest. As for those who didn't believe, God said this, In my anger I made a vow that they will never enter my place of rest. Even though his place of rest has been ready since, the, since he made the world, we know it is ready because the scriptures mention the seventh day saying, on the seventh day God rested from all of his work. Now what does verse 4 say? Verse 4 says in my translation, the living translation, for we know it is ready. We know that there's been a day that has been established since when? The foundation of the time. The beginning. The writer of Hebrews says, that we know that it is ready. Okay. Let's say with me here now with the word ready. What is this table representative of? 
Preparedness. What is preparedness? It is readiness. What does readiness mean? It means it is complete. There's nothing lacking. There's nothing missing. It is ready. What What does the what? Okay, in, in our terms, layman's terms, what does the dinner table represent? Okay, I know for the most part, most of society does not gather around the dinner table. We don't do it that much at my house, but it's a very good thing and discipline to do, and we try to. Why? Because it is an it, it is an intimate setting. It is a personal setting, and I believe that there is there is a lot of benefit for a family to gather around uh, the the intimacy of a dinner table, to where you're face to face and you can have a conversation over a meal. Because if we look at everything Jesus did, Jesus did a lot of his best teachings at supper during during the times when he fed his disciples. I think the foundational markings of the church. Happened in the during in the upper room during the Lord's Supper and even into uh, the day of Pentecost, which took place in the same upper room where he fed the disciples the Last Supper, where Thomas came in and experienced the wound in his hands and thrust his hand into the wound in his side and felt the heartbeat of Jesus. It's where Jesus came in through the door while it was locked because the disciples were scared of the Jews. It's where he washed their feet. It's where he he he. He taught them, and he took them into this revelation of the Son of Man was going to have to suffer. All of these great foundational things happened in this upper room in a place of intimacy, set in a rested posture at a place of meat. Okay? So readiness, completeness, uh, fulfillment, all of those things are significant about the table, the table that was set before you, prepared before you, the banquet that he has prepared before you. All of this is significant. Why? Because it is him who is the banquet. It is him who is very present in the banquet. We've got to understand that we try to distinguish and divide so much of Jesus when Jesus is the same and he is everything in everything. Okay, that's safe. this seat right here to my left is the same seat here to my right. It's just different dimensions. This is the dimension and posture of rest through submission. That is the dimension and posture of mercy through authority. This is where he is seated now. But he needs you to come and be seated with him by, be, by surrendering yourself to this seat. Why? Because the dinner table in our day, if we ever watch a movie where they ring the bell and they say dinner is ready, these old cowboys come out of the field for mending fences and wrangling cattle, and they come and they wash up and they go into dinner. Why? Because dinner represents that the work is done and that the rest has begun. When I come home from work, I work eight hours a day, mostly and on average. I work eight hours a day. When I get home after work, a lot of the times my wife has dinner prepared. Why? Because it is the ending of a long day of work that symbolizes the beginning of my evening of rest. Okay, why is this so significant in the church today? Because this was signifying to the church that the long day's work was behind us and that the evening of the cool of the day was ahead of us. That's pretty daggone good. What is the revelation here? That when I do anything through Christ Jesus, it's actually me coming into a posture of rest and him working through me and it is effortless on my behalf. I don't have to exert. I have, y'all know the story about a man that told me, he said, if you ain't sweating, you ain't anointed. I disagree totally. 
Why? Because Adam did not walk in the heat of the day and he did not sweat. He walked in the cool of the day where his temperature was at a comfortable where his temperature was at, at a place of comfort. What was the curse? He would have to earn his living by the sweat of his brow. So if I'm sweating, it may symbolize and indicate that I might be working or operating out of a curse. You, well, you're not going to get any, you're not going to get very, very, very many preachers to agree with me, if any, on what I just said. church service was so good because there wasn't a dry thread on his body. He was sweating so bad. You know what the Holy Spirit told me? Because he was trying to do all the work. He was trying to do it. I can't do it. You can't do it. Nobody can do it. Nobody can do it effectively until we allow Jesus to do it through us by way of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me, let me jump into some of this stuff. I, I don't plan to keep y'all very, very, very long tonight, but I do have some things that I want to discuss. I want to go to Matthew chapter 14, then I want to go back to uh, Hebrews 4, and then maybe jump back to Luke chapter 10 tonight. Hopefully, and, and with God's grace and his provision, I'll do that very swiftly, quickly, and still not miss anything, and we can all get fed tonight, and then go home and enjoy the rest of the evening. I hope your heaters and your 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 uh, what do they call them things outside? Heat pump. Heat pump. Thank you. Our work. Oh, it's pretty daggone cold out there. It's been cold all day. Twenty-five. Man, it's like it's like eighteen degrees when I left the house this morning. That's pretty it's pretty chill. Still. Is there a heater on in the pump? No, I have no idea. I'm going to probably go out on. Uh, uh, we in the same lot. No, it's not. Do that single for the week. Uh, 14, verse 7. And he put forth a parable to those which were bidden when he marked how they chose out the sheep room, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. Verse 9 says, And he that bade thee, and him and he that bade, bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee come, cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, to say friend. Friend. Go. Luke chapter 14, I'm at verse 10 right now. I may have said Matthew. Yeah, I may have said Matthew. <laughs> Sorry. Luke. Luke 14, I'm in verse 10. He said, But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, say friend. Friend. Go up higher, say go up higher. Go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meet with thee. The word worship there is actually translated honor. Now, verse 10 is really one of the primary verses that I want to emphasize here tonight. He says, friend, go up higher 
Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at me with thee. Now, I, 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 we have to know that if he goes, well, let's go on to verse 11 and 12. Or no, verse 11. Verse 11 says, For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now, the thing about this is that it is so necessary, it is so pivotal, it is so vital that the man or woman of God, the church, comes to God in a humble posture and position. Why? Because those that come to Jesus in a humble posture and position are given the invitation to go higher. Okay? So if you understand now, this is the humble posture and position. This is the place where you come in into a place... I know that there's a lot of words that I'm using. This seat is very significant to your, your. I don't want to say progress, but progress is the word I want to use. This seat is very significant to your progress. It's very significant to your advancement because the idea and the goal behind getting you to this seat is to advance you to that seat. Come on. So this seat represents many, many things. But all those things come together because God worked all things together for those, for the good of those that love him according to his purpose and call. So this is his purpose and this is his call. Why? Because this is his invitation to you to come and be seated at a table where you have been bidden. It means that he has already prepared it for you. Called, invited. That's because he has bidden you. We learned last week that in the parable, he said, many are called if you were chosen. The whole context behind chosen is the only way that you get chosen to enter that seat is when God looks down and can't tell you apart from Jesus. Why? Because the ekletos, that, that, that word for elect, is the same word for chosen. That word literally means that it is you, this generation, those that have put on the garment and the robe of righteousness, which belongs to Yeshua, I need to slow down, praise God. Yeshua. Is what identifies you. When Yahweh peers down at you. Okay? Listen, here, here this is very significant. Imagine that there is a person sitting in this seat. Okay, for the illustration's sake, imagine that Yeshua is seated here. This is the mercy seat at the right hand of the throne of God. And this is Yahweh's throne, okay? This person answers the call. Many are called, few are chosen. So now he sits down in a seat and a posture of humility. Why? Because he first had to remove his garments, which were as filthy rags. So now he is seated in this place and in this position, but he has no identity of his own. Why? Because he is now being covered with the robe of righteousness. And when Yahweh begins to stand up and peer down at that seat, he cannot distinguish whether or not that is Jesus because Jesus is to the right of him, but Jesus is before him. So therefore, that's when he hears, friend, Go higher. This is the seat of humility. This is the seat of exaltation. Okay, I don't come to this seat to receive exaltation. I come to this seat because he deserves me to come in humility that he would receive exaltation. 
<clears throat> the thing about Jesus is that he is so selfless that he reserves his exaltation for even his bride. For his friend. Okay. In this parable, the man who gives the dinner tells his friend to go up higher. If you'll go to Romans, or not Romans, if you'll go to Revelation chapter 4, we've used this scripture quite a bit over the last year. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. I'm not going to read the whole thing. No, you saying. Okay. Verse 1, chapter 4, Revelation. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were a trumpet talking with me, which said, listen to this, come up hither. So in Luke 14, he says, friend, go higher, which means that he is going, he, he is coming to those that have abased themselves. Abased means humility. Humility is what allows righteousness to cover you. Pride, arrogance, boldness in the wrong context disqualifies you from the robe of his righteousness. So when you come in, I, I listen, I think this is what we really got to understand about all of this. When I say yes to this invite, to this table, it is actually saying that anything that I've done prior will never identify me again. And nothing that I do beyond this moment will ever identify me again. It literally means that when I set myself in this seat at the banquet that he has bidden me to, I am relinquishing my identity, both past, present, and future. Why? Because now, from this point forward, now I'm saying that you can be saved be on this side of this chair. There are many people that I believe that answer the call to salvation that never actually walk in the identity of salvation. I believe there's many in the church that are saved from hell, but never go through this posture so that they can be saved for the kingdom. I have got to, I have got to come into surrender slash and or acceptance that I have been defeated. When I say defeated, it means that I have been decreased. When I say defeated, it literally means that I have denied who? Myself. I've denied myself and taken up my cross. And then I follow him. Where is he at? He is in heaven or heavenly places. Okay? Does this make sense to the church? No. Because we say one glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. That's not what the Bible is actually teaching us. It says that we have permission by way of humility and surrender to follow him into heavenly places. Here's another scripture that we have used quite a bit this year. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 and verse 6. Even when we were dead in sins, hath he quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. Verse 6. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Oh, come on, I can't. Somebody throw me a ball. I can't make this up. Where do we follow him to? We follow him into heavenly places. Because once we follow him into heavenly places, then spiritually speaking, we are Jesus as he is in heaven. We are Jesus in this earth. This is, this is going to probably blow your mind. Though this seed and that seed are the same seed, just different dimensions, they're not in different dispensations. Right. They're different dimensions at the same moment in eternity forever. Right. Can I explain that? No. I, 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 why not? Because he's omnipresent. He's here as he is there. His name is Jehovah. Well, I never got his name, Jehovah. Well, there's another one. Help me out, somebody. Trying to finish it on the other head. It's not so long that God might be in the shalom. That's God might be. I think I'm going to point it out here in a minute. I want to say Jehovah Shalom. Anyway, whatever it means, it means God, that he is God there. What does that mean? Uh, it means that wherever you go, there is he, he is God, and God is there. What does it mean? God was with you before you left, but he was already waiting for you when you got there. He's God everywhere. That's why he is omnipresent. He is omni. He is everywhere. Jehovah Shema. Jehovah Shema. He, he. He is here the same as he is there. They are the same he is here. So when I am in Christ Jesus, I am maybe seated in two different dimensions, but they're not dispensations. They're not different dispensations. But when I make it to this seat appropriately, then I automatically make it to that one. Does that make sense? Because I no longer exist once I've made it to this seat at this banquet. Why? Huh? I'm his. I thought you said innocent. But I am his because he has made me innocent. He presents us to himself without spot or blemish or any such thing. This whole seat right here when we grasp a hold that this seat is foundational to the eternal existence of the church and the church walking in the apostolic authority that it was called to walk in, it, it really means that when we get into this seat, everything that we thought we were and everything that we thought we were going to be does not matter nor does it exist because now we only exist in him. That's really where we're supposed to be. How adamant am I am about this? The, 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 that camera not working does not bother me. Why? Because now it does not, I do not have to go home and feel guilty that God never told me to turn that camera on. So now I'm really taking it as a blessing that God went ahead and turned it off. Why? Because a couple of months ago, I heard the Lord speak to me personally. I don't need you in the limelight. 
I'm trying to call you deeper into the wilderness, into the most elusive places, so that you can disappear, disappear completely and fully in me. When, when have I achieved my greatest dreams when I disappeared in him? My dreams have changed. My dreams went from being showcased on the platform of the stage of TVN being interviewed by Jan Crouch to disappearing entirely, by, uh, entirely from society so that I could just spend my moment in eternity with him. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. I promise you that things will begin to change in the realms of the spiritual places when you realize that you do not matter, nor do you even are you even relevant. I am not relevant. And my dream is that I become so irrelevant that he becomes the most prevalent anywhere and everywhere I go. Because I have said yes to this seat. What, what did I say Sunday? When Jesus fed the four and the five thousands, what did he tell the disciples to tell the men? He told the men to be seated. He, he, he told the men to be seated so that they could see him and witness him uh, uh, multiply the bread and the fishes and that they could witness the miracle. They could only witness the miracle that the son was sent to perform when the fathers began to find a posture of seated rest. And it was in the posture of seated rest that they found their identity. Why? Because seated fathers in a posture of rest are placed where they're placed so that they can be distributors to families. This, 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 this is where he needs us. This is where he needs me. I'll just say it that way. He needs me in a surrendered posture of rest on a grassy knoll so that I am not doing anything that would obstruct my view of watching him perform the miraculous. Hmm? So that I could be seated. And nothing would obstruct my view of watching him perform the miraculous. Why? Because if I'm not seated, then I'm usually in perpetual motion. And the perpetual motion comes by way of me trying to do something that will begin to lift up my personality. This, this whole thing is about not having a personality. Like, personality, well, yeah, you can have a, you can have a sense of humor. You, you, can, you can have all of that. I'm talking about... Uh, a personality. I'm talking about ego. I'm talking about an identity. All those things that drive ministers in the 21st century and in the day that we're in and it's not what is supposed to be driving them. What is supposed to be driving them is elusive. They can go deeper into the wilderness and deeper into the places of where, where, where no man has gone before. I'll steal one from Star Trek. Hmm? Where, where, where do they go? Into the yonder. Imagine, imagine that Star Trek show going into the heavenly places where no man has gone before. Can I almost say this selfishly? Almost. I want my feet to tread where no man's foot has ever went before. 
I want to walk so deep and so thick into the presence of Yeshua that when I get there, I realize that I'm on uncharted ground. I am on uncharted waters. I am, I am delving into and exploring territories that have never seen light of a man's footsteps. I believe, I believe, and I believe, I'm going to say it again, I believe that there are men that are being called into the elusive wilderness to where they know that they no longer matter when who they thought they were mattered, and they are understanding that they have to come into a posture of irrelevance so that they can be invited and be given permission and access into where he is the most prevalent, and when men that answer that call begin to walk into society, the elusiveness that is upon them, which is the epistemato, begins to draw attention, but not to themselves, but to something that is more spectacular than even they are, and it is the presence of one named Yeshua. Listen, you, you, would not, you could not argue me that if, some, if I began to uh, jump in the swimming pool and came in here drenched, soaked, and wet, you could not argue me that I was riding along. If you try to argue me that I was riding along, it means that you're either blind or you're a fool. Okay? So if the oil of the anointing begins to fall upon a man's head and it begins to drip all the way down to his feet, there is no one that can argue that he is not in the anointing because the residue and the evidence is all over him and then the evidence and the evidence is left wherever he goes because it leaves an imprint and a footprint wherever his foot has trodden. So when a man has began to explore and dive into the depths of his presence and his essence and his existing, and then you begin to surface again, what happens? Everybody remember the movie Castaway? Tom Hanks? How many years was he gone on the Earth Island? Four years? What happened when that cat surfaced? You were dead. We gave up on you. We gave up on you. Anybody remember the movie uh, that Leonardo DiCaprio was in when he played Hugh Glass? He was left for dead. He shows back up, and everybody thinks that this guy is either a ghost, he's an apparition, or whatever. It's because everybody had given up hope. Why? Because they had written him off. He no longer existed. Now, all of a sudden, that one that was buried and hidden within the realms and within the places of elusiveness have now shown up. And it, it makes people who wrote them off for no good, they begin to wonder. What has just happened? What's taking place? Who is that? What is that? So when we come off of Mount Sinai, so to speak, like Moses when he was in the presence of God, there's something that radiates off of our face, and it begins to provoke a wonder in those that begin to peer upon the glory that is a residue upon the one who spent time in intimacy with God. That's really what we're trying to understand here. Is when I can walk into a restaurant and without a shirt that says I heart my church, without a shirt that says pastor, without a license plate that says clergy, 
and somebody looks and sees something on top of me, or upon me, I should say, and around me, that they can't quite identify, but they know that it's from out of this world. Why? Because even though I'm in it, I'm not of it. And he says that even though you're in it, you're not of it, no, no more than he is of it. What happens? Everybody is, is, is used to, everybody is, is accustomed to seeing uh, a double or a spike or a four point or a three point. I get home from work today and there's seven deer in my yard. I'm accustomed to it. It doesn't, it, it doesn't interest me. I see them all the time. But what happens, listen, this is just some, some, some bow hunting terminology and lingo. Everybody wants to hunt the mature bucks. Why? Because the mature bucks, uh, they hide themselves into the thickest places of elusiveness. They only come out at night when nobody, when, when, when the crowds and when everybody is already inside and everybody is asleep and everybody is comfortable, then they come out and they begin to roam. They've lived in the wilderness for years and, and no one has ever seen them. And when they did see them, it was just a glimpse. And everybody wants to see that elusive, mature, majestic, white-tailed buck come. And if a buck walked out this, it walked down this road, I guarantee you somebody would run back in this building and tell everybody to come out and look at this buck. Why? Because nobody in the room has seen anything like that before. And that is how it will be with those men and women who answer the call into his presence through a place and posture of surrender and humility. When he deems it is time for them to reappear and resurface, it will bring a it will bring a a a, a sense of wonder. It will bring a sense of wonder and awe and people will begin to peer in and say there's something majestic. There is something, something, something spiritual, supernatural about that person. That is my dream. It's not to have my name written on on, on a marquee somewhere, or my name to be under some lights. It's not for me uh, to be exalted as a traveling evangelist or whatever it may be. My dream now is that I would utterly disappear with inside of his presence, that when I walk, that, that even creation will not be able to distinguish or tell the difference between Seth and Jesus. Why? Because when I sit here, I actually sat down in the presence of Jesus. When I sit down here, the presence of Jesus is so prevalent that it overwhelms everything and all that I thought I was. And I literally, literally, utterly, and spiritually disappear within the presence of Yeshua. And then at that moment, I become in the earth as he is in heaven. This seed and that seed are the same seed. They're the one and the same. They're identical, just different dimensions, but they're not different dispensations. I, I want to say this, that if there was one dispensation that I believe in, it's the dispensation of Christ. Yes, there's the dispensation of grace. There's all of these dispensations and, 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 and uh, theological geniuses have, have been great at, at pointing those out. But I'm going to tell you the dispensation that gets me the most and the dispensation that I look forward to the most is the dispensation of Christ, which begins the day that I live in the presence of Yeshua. Have I got time? 
He says, friend, go up higher. Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship or honor in the presence of them that sit at me with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbled himself shall be exalted. Revelations 4 1 says, Come up hither, and I will show you things to come hereafter. There, there, there is a significance in elevation and altitude when it comes to our Christian walk. Okay? Abased means bottom, means low. Exalted means higher. It is always necessary for the Christian to come into the place of abased and humbled and humility. Because it is there in this posture of rest and this posture of acceptance that says, okay, let me go back to what I said earlier. I know that we're doing podcasts now, we're not doing live TV, but anyway, I need y'all to see this. This is my journey, and I'm, I'm starting my journey out, and, and I'm going through a journey of accepting Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I'm going through a, a journey of discipleship, and I'm going through a journey of maturity, and, 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 and all along the way, there's still, there's still tidbits, if you will, of religion that is being mixed into this discipleship. And religion says that everything is, 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 is work-oriented. Everything in, in the ethics of religion is based upon works, which works are not entirely bad. Absolutely, I'm not, I'm not saying works are entirely bad. But it's not works of righteousness, which we have done, but it's by grace that he saves us. So my whole journey is not by works of righteousness, which I have done, because the Bible teaches me that my righteousness is as filthy rags. But what, what religion continues to teach and teach and teach is through the discipleship, through, even through uh, being mingled in the discipleship of Christ, is that it's all work-oriented, what you do or what you don't do. But as I am traveling in my journey, my whole journey is for me to get to that seat. Why? Because this journey is work-oriented. I am working, but he does not want me to work with works of righteousness, which I have done. So when I finally realize that this seat was set before me, I have sat down in a posture of rest. And when I come into this posture of rest, spiritually speaking, I come into a place of humility. Because I can turn and look down this road and see all the magnificent things that I have done, all the works of righteousness when I have done, and I am able to see through the lens of humility that all of that was just filthy rats. Now all of that is behind me, and none of that now identifies me. What then happens? Now that I'm in a posture of humility, and a posture of rest, and I'm at the banquet that has been prepared before me since even the beginning of time, because this is the day of rest, I now peer into that throne which is in heavenly places and realize 
that that which is before me that I ever do does not identify me any more than what I left behind me. I realize right here that nothing I have done and nothing I will ever do identifies me. What identifies me is simply and solely what he has already did. Jesus. Hmm? I let him tell me I can preach. I let him tell me I had an anointing. I let him tell me that I was bigger than Long Branch Church of God. I had people standing right there in that door tell me you're bigger than him. I'm pretty fat. But I don't know what you're talking about. Because the whole time God is saying, oh yeah, he's exalting himself. That's not what I want. I want you to abase yourself because I've got so much prepared for you. Hmm? I need you to be ready. You know why I never could partake in this meal? Because I've done discussed this a few Sundays ago. There's nothing laid out on this table that is prepared for me that is appealing to the appetite of self. You gotta understand, you'll never make it to this seat because everything you do from point A to point B during the journey of your uh, your uh, your conversion. Okay, I've given myself to Christ. I gave myself to Christ. I cried upon the altar. I I, I said I'm going to do everything right. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. The whole time it was irrelevant of everything that I said I was going to do. This and that did not matter. What mattered was that moment when I said, okay, I can't do anything with myself. I can't do anything with what I have done to myself. But the only option I've got is to come into this posture of humility and let Yeshua, Jesus, take care of me. Because when I get to that place of humility, he covers me. So everything on this road that I did was irrelevant. At this point. Did it not matter about anything? No, it didn't matter about anything. That's not what I'm saying. It mattered. But what we've got to understand is that when I get to this place right here, I realize that that does not identify me because my identity was everything that got in the way. I can prove this. Psychology proves this. Sigmund and Freud says that there's three parts of the identity or the, the, the psyche. The psyche is where we, we get the word, we get the word psyche from the word suke. The word suke is the word soul. What does the word of God do? It divides the spirit from the soul. What is the spirit? It is the mind of Christ. What is the soul? It is the will of the man. What is the soul? It is the identity of the individual. So with soulish behavior. Why? Because everything I'd done by the influence of that soulish behavior was done with the intentions to promote my identity. I got invited to preach one time at a, at a, and, and, and on, on their sign, excuse me, on their sign, they advertised it for about a month that Pastor Seth Fine was going to be the guest speaker. I was so proud, I went by and took a picture of it, honey, and put it on Facebook. Hey, they got some hands out of that. That was stupid of me. That was so immature of me. Because I wasn't a showcase. I was a fool myself. I preached for three hours. I should have known after an hour and a half when everybody was getting up and leave. I was not in my element. I wasn't as anointed as I thought I was. I'd get arrogant and say, Oh, I'll preach for three days. If you can't, we'll stay awake. You know? 
fell and falls off the third story window. And Paul goes down and throws himself apart. Don't you worry, there's still life in him. And keeps on preaching. I'd see him get up and leave, and I'd breakfast Paul. All out the window, they are. None of that matters. My name is no longer relevant. If my name is so insignificant, my name is so insignificant. Because I, my, my, listen, you know what Sigmund Freud says? Sigmund Freud says the three parts of the, of, the, of, the, of the human personality is the ID, the ego, and the superego. Now, I'm taking what Sigmund Freud concluded and I'm trying to put him my own little twist on there. I believe that the ID represents identity. Okay, he believes that the ID is the only part of the personality that everyone is born with initially. Okay, and this is where it gets very significant. Okay, my journey was my infancy. I disappeared in the posture of my maturity. You see how this seat represents so many things. It represents so many things. Humility, but I find maturity in humility. So everything, when I am a, y'all got time. We got time. Just a few more minutes. Give me, give me, a, give me space here. Okay. I am at, I'm at point A. I'm born again. I said that everything along this road was discipline. It was discipleship. It was development. So there is a, there, there is a road of infancy. Okay, in my infancy, I operate out of the ID. I believe, and for the for the sake of my, my, my illustration, I'm operating out of identity. Why? Because in my infancy, let's go back to a child. A child has no other behavioral patterns but the ones that he exhibits out of his ID. What does he do if he's hungry? He cries, he acts out. What does he do if he's wet? He cries, he acts out. What does he do if he has a bellyache? He cries and he acts out. What does he do if he wants a toy? He cries and he acts out. What does he do if he wants attention? He cries and he acts out. Why? Because the ID or the identity in a person's infancy only knows how to respond in what makes them the most prevalent and what gives them the most attention. If Reed is on my lap and Race wants my attention, Race will climb up in my lap and get between me and Reed. If Race is in my lap and Reed wants my attention, Reed will climb up in my lap and get between me and Race. Why? Because they respond to whatever benefits them the most with no, with, with, with absolutely no consideration to anyone else. If he wants the toy, he takes the toy. If she wants the toy, she takes the toy. Why? Because the ID is the nature. It is instinct. The ID, I believe, represents the most, in the most simplest definition, carnality. Why? Because the baby knows that he needs milk and he cries to get it. The baby knows that he needs to be changed and he cries until he's changed. The baby knows that he wants to be healed, so he cries until he is picked up and healed. What happens when you begin to move out of infancy into maturity? You begin to understand that ego, according to Sigmund and Freud, is reality. 
And then you begin to allow reality to overwhelm the instinctive, the instinctful behavior of your carnality, and then you begin to act and you begin to respond out of the posture of humility and maturity. Do you understand when, when your kids get older, they know that you they can't act up in Walmart? Why? Because they're responding out of maturity and humility. When they're babies, only they matter. Their world is the only one that exists. Do you see what I'm saying here? So when I was born again, a baby in Christ, I had to go through a developmental process called infancy. But when I got into the place of humility and said everything I did from this point past no longer identifies me. When I cried for this, no longer identifies me. When I demanded that, it no longer identifies me. When I tripped over that toy, it no longer identifies me. Now, I'm operating out of a seated place of humility because I've entered into a maturity. I'm no longer a man, and I have to do away with childish things. So now I'm operating out of the sense of ego. It's still the psyche. It's still the soul. It's still the suke. But it's a maturity that happens. So what I'm trying to get across tonight is that everything that happens beyond from that point of acceptance of Jesus as your Lord and Savior to when you get to this posture of humility that actually, that actually gives you honor and maturity. Is that not what it said? Come up here, come up, go up higher, friend, and then you will receive worship of all that have attended the supper, as thou all have attended the... You, you will obtain honor. I believe that when you begin to obtain honor, it only comes through a way of the recognition and maturity on a person. The same way, listen, when we go into the woods as bow hunters, we're looking for a 180-inch deer. We're looking for the one that's been there the longest. We're looking for the one that has been hid the longest. Listen, you may, own, you may see that eight point fourteen times in two weeks, once a day, but you may hunt the entire two weeks and never see that 160-inch deer or that 180-inch deer. And you may only have one chance to see it. Why? Because it does not matter. He does not want to be seen. And maturity does not want to be seen, but infancy demands to be the attention. Am I preaching? So what happens? Ego is maturity. What is the superego? It is morality. I want to say that it is super maturity or spiritual maturity. Why? Because, see, the idea says I want it and I want it now. I must have it and I'll do whatever I can do to get attention. The ego, and, and I'm, I can twist Sigmund Freud's stuff up because I believe there's three different instances of the, of the identity and the ego because there's people that are egocentric. They're self-centered and self-absorbed. But in Sigmund and Freud's case, the ego is reality, and the superego is morality. I, I, I say this, I, I believe that the ID or the identity responds out of carnality. The ego responds in maturity. And the superego responds in spirituality. Does that make sense? Carnality, maturity, spirituality. Okay, when I get to this place of maturity, then I am automatically advanced to that place of spirituality. And it is when I get to here that I begin to obtain the mindset of Christ. 
And then was when I began to obtain the mindset of Christ, my walk then becomes not my walk, but his walk. Spirituality. When I understand that what he is thinking, and I understand about what he's getting ready to say, I then become oneness and togetherness with him. It only comes by way of me getting here in humility, maturity, and submissiveness. I'm telling you, I, I think I can preach on this chair and that throne for another year because this represents so much that most of us overlook. One little supper and banquet that we overlook. Yes, it's pretty, it's theatrical, it's poetic, it's, 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 it's very sweet, it's, but it means so much that we overlook. This chair is where I lose my identity so that I can receive his and walk in his identity and not mine. Here, maturity. Let me see. Let me, let me look just, just a few more seconds and I may just let you go one more. Okay. We're talking about, again, that, that chair represents so much. Rest. When I come into this posture of rest, am I confusing everybody? Because when I come here, and this is prepared before me, it's actually the acceptance that my hard day's work is over, and I'm beginning, this is the beginning of me entering into an, an, an evenings of cool breeze and rest. The presence of Yeshua, the presence of Yahweh. This is me coming out of the fields of labor and into the Garden of Eden and the posture of rest. This is me, this is me coming back into my destiny. Does that make sense? Your destiny was the garden because the garden was the presence of Yeshua. The cool of the day. Listen, what, what, what do we look forward to on, on a hot summer day when we've been in the garden working and toiling in the, in, in the soil and holding the corn and the potatoes? We look for a nice shady spot. Maybe it's a swing on our front porch, but we're looking for a posture and a place of rest in the cool of the day because it is refreshing. What does Peter preach in the book of Acts? Repent, for the day of the Lord is at hand, that we may be ready for the refreshing. The, the day of refreshing. That word actually means the cooling day. The resting day. So when I come here, I acknowledge that my work is over and that my rest in Him has been newly begun. And then everything that I do here forward is out of the posture and out of the uh, out of the posture of rest. It is out of the position of rest. It then becomes effortless, effortlessly for me in anything that I do for the kingdom of Jesus. Well, explain martyrism. You ever read the book of the martyrs? Fox's book of the martyrs? They died effortlessly. So yes, I believe that everything you do from this point forward is absolutely effortless. I read a story about a Chinese uh, church in China that was called an underground church, and all they had to do was recant, recant, and denounce Christ. But they laid them down in a floor, in a row, excuse me. All of them with their feet and their head pointed the same way, and, and they began to come up the line of all of these Chinese Christians laying on the road. 
with a steamroller. And they began to roll up onto their toes and their feet and their ankles and their calves and, and, and their, their thighs and their backs until, and uh, none of them recanted. None of them renounced Jesus. And it is recorded that as they were being squashed to death by a steamroller, they sung hymns. Even they died of Can you see what I'm trying to teach here? Can we see this? There's a place of peace here. My work is done because he's established. John 19 and 30 to tell us about it is finished. It's done. There's no more. There's nothing left. It's done. Enter into his place and posture of rest. I, I, can I explain all this in one night? No, I can't explain it to you at all. If we sit down for five hours, I can't explain it yet, but I promise you that God's going to give you the answer because I am, I'm hung up on this. I'm chasing this. This is my pursuit. My pursuit is to disappear in a posture of selflessness and restfulness. Selflessness and restfulness. Can I read you just a few more things here? Somebody, 844, uh, kind of bring a little long Hebrews 4, I'm going to skip down to verse 8. This new place of rest was not the land of Canaan, where Joshua led them. If it had been, God would not have spoken later about another day of rest. So there is a special, there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who enter into God's rest will find rest from their labors, just as God rested after creating the world. Let us do our best to enter that place of rest. For anyone who disobeys God, as the people of Israel did, will fall. For the word of God is full of living power. It is sharper than the sharpest knife, cutting deep into the innermost thought and desire. It exposes us for what we really are. Nothing in all creation can hide from him. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. This is the God to whom we must explain all that we have done. That is why we have a great high priest who has gone to heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us cling to him and never stop trusting him. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all of the same temptations we do, yet did he not sin. Yet he did not sin, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it. How do we get to that place of coming to the, the throne of grace closely? We come to the supper table humbly. If I want to get to that, that throne boldly, I've got to first make it to this table humbly. Humility promotes me. into a place of permission to stand over. And it doesn't stop there. Two things. He said, friend, go higher. He said, come up hither. So there is different elevations, dimensions, and altitudes of friendship. That's seat, man. 
I have steamrolled this tonight. I've told you about 25 different things that this chair represents. And you can't have one without having it all. You can't have it all with missing one. This chair will change your eternity and your identity forever. It's changing me, and I promise it will change you. There will be a day, and I look forward to the day that you no longer see me, as Pastor said, but you see me as the essence of Jesus. Why? Because we were all created in his image and his likeness. All of humanity has the stamp and the impression of his essence. It only has to be awoken. Okay? I believe that you, I believe that we, I believe that myself have the invitation to come into the essence of who he is and that you will then begin to disappear. And once you have completely disappeared, you will then appear as he appeared. His essence. Come on, I'm going to let y'all go because I can keep going. Because I, I really, I, I'm, I dig this. That's why I keep digging. It's, it's, it's great. Boldness. Humility to boldness. Disappearing, reappearing. It is not yet clear what we shall be. But one thing is sure, that when he appears, we will appear as him. When he appears, we will appear as him. You know what I believe? When we receive it, the revelation. His essence. That, I'm going to say that. We'll say that. Are we fed? Our vision for the Rooted Legacy podcast is that we give as much free content to God's creation as possible. However, if you've been affected by God's word and would like to give, you can do so at Tithely Online or on the Tithely app. Just search Laurel Branch Church of God. Our address is Clear Fork, West Virginia 24822. That is Tithely.ly dot l y thank you for listening and may god bless you and all that you do today welcome to the rooted legacy podcast at laurel branch church of god we are devoted to developing an environment of engagement with yahweh and hosting his presence attentively Our hope is to help others become rooted in beloved identity and further the kingdom of God on this earth. From Pastor Seth Klein and the congregation at Laurel Branch Church of God, we hope this message brightens your day and changes your life. We pray that God blesses you and all that you do. Thanks for listening.